How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. Do you guys think that uh, Channing Tatum's character in this has like a red rocket or more of like a human dick? <laughs> I think that this movie is tiptoeing along a dangerous line. <laughs> and so Wachowskis are known for for pushing the barriers. We're getting to furry territory here. I mean, that's not furry territory, buddy. That's bestiality. Here's, yeah, here's bestiality. I guess that's true. Yeah. I so. think Eddie Red I think Eddie Redmayne's character is the only one that truly knows and that's why he talks that way. <laughs> oh, oh man. Eddie Redmayne. Don't even his weird fucking mouth. That fucking guy. Dick is so it's it's so it just didn't, it made me slow down. Uh, his dick, his dick, his dick. Oh, hello, and uh, welcome to Cinema Shock. This is the podcast that explores the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horde. Hey, I'm co-host Justin Bishop, and I am co-host Todd A. Davis. And welcome to part seven of our look at the filmography of Lana and Lily Wachowski in a series we've titled "The Cinema of Fluidity." We're nearing the end of our series fellas as we've kind of tracked during the course of this series over the past six episodes up till now seven if you count the uh, the animatrix little bonus episode that we did yeah. uh, since releasing the juggernaut that was the matrix in 1999 the wachowskis have kind of been struggling to repeat that kind of success with nearly everything released after the, those matrix movies yielding lackluster box office numbers and mixed reactions at best from both critics and audiences yeah and yet they do kind of continue to push the boundaries of what's expected from them with each film becoming a little bit more ambitious it seems than the one that preceded it and that trend continues with the film we're talking about this week Uh, maybe their most ambitious film to date a film that would become certainly their most expensive film to date but one that yet again failed to connect with viewers and critics Uh, and does it deserve this movie's got a terrible reputation so does it deserve that reputation as a bomb as a critical bomb does it deserve the uh, currently 28 percent rating on rotten tomatoes God. that's what <laughs> we're going to discuss that this week as we get into it but first we're going to trace the creation of the wachowski's 2015 film jupiter ascending you've been searching for one thing your whole life I want her found. It's her. Good. Kill her. Who are you? I'm here to help you. Just know what in the hell is going on. It can be difficult for people from underdeveloped worlds to hear that their planet is not the only inhabited planet. Your Earth is a very small part of a very large industry. I think we might have stumbled into a war with some of the most powerful dynasties in the universe. Why is this happening to me? You are royalty. 
We need a plan. We need firepower. You know, that's one thing I will. That's one thing I will say about the Wachowskis is, I, well, for, well, OK, two things. Uh, yes, of course, the Matrix set a super high bar and, you know, it's it's tough to get lightning to strike twice in Hollywood. But yeah. I will say of their efforts afterwards, they they always swing for the fences. And if you're going to swing, do. you have to swing hard. Yeah, so. they absolutely do. They always they always do. And, and whether they hit the mark is has has been up for debate on pretty much all of the movies since mm. the matrix hell since the first matrix really even on the matrix sequels yeah uh, with the exception maybe of v for vendetta i think that one's pretty well regarded overall but mm-hmm. seems the rest be. of them the rest of them really seem to split people down the middle so jupiter ascending would actually mark the first original film that is one not based on an existing property that the wachowskis would produce since the matrix because remember everything they've done since then has been an adaptation of a book or in the case of speed race or a tv show mm. uh, but much like the matrix the film is an amalgamation of many influences uh, from the obvious fantasy and sci-fi influences of which we can't possibly list them all two more surprising ones like the odyssey and the wizard of oz the film's journey began back in 2009 this is even before cloud atlas when warner brothers president jeff robinov approached the wachowskis about creating an original intellectual property and franchise how many of these do you think the wachowskis just have in their back pocket it feels like every one of these stories starts off with like if somebody wants to do something with the Wachowskis, oh, we've got this thing we've been working on for 20 years. So yeah. here it is. <laughs> I mean, it feels that way because I, I, they're they're creative people. You know, they're creative people. And I'm sure that they've always got ideas, even sketched out ideas. Whether those are fully fleshed or not is another question. But, you know, that, that's how a lot of, I think, creative people work. They ha- have an idea and they stash it in their back pocket. And then later they decide, hey, this is the one I'm going to actually develop a little bit further. See where it goes. Yeah, so for it's sure. Possible. But yeah, that's kind of what happened with this. I mean, he, Jeff Robinov wanted, essentially, I think he wanted them to do, he wanted to create another franchise like The Matrix, like something that could be multiple films, a big universe. And well, you talk about, uh, you know, the mixing of, uh, you know, so many different influences. You just mentioned that it makes me think like, okay, The Matrix came out in 99. So had they gotten started on this in the 70s? Would Jupiter Ascending have been the next Star Wars? No. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good question, but it, it's hard to say because, I mean, this movie does owe a lot to Star Wars. Uh, sure. not, nece- you know, not necessarily visually, because I think it's doing something vastly different than Star Wars. Yeah, but that hero's true. journey, I mean, Jupiter is fucking Luke Skywalker without the ability to actually fight because that's kind of a big part of her character is that she is pretty passive and doesn't really can't uh, fight, but way less whiny <laughs> way less whiny yeah yeah <laughs> so it would be a few more years until active development began on the project with the film's visual effects team doing preliminary pre-production work based on a first draft of the script all while the wachowskis were shooting the future segments of cloud atlas so they've already started all the stuff we were talking about last week during cloud atlas they've this this overlaps that and the script itself was as I, I mentioned before at least partially inspired by lana wachowski's favorite book which is homer's the odyssey and the film version of the wizard of oz nice and lana describes how these two works influenced the story saying 
quote, I was reading the Odyssey and it was making me super emotional. The whole concept of these almost spiritual journeys and you're changed. And I had changed. And then she later found herself watching The Wizard of Oz on TV and afterwards had a conversation about the film with Lily. And and The Wizard of Oz is like this movie that they grew up on. They watched it every year when it was on TV and stuff like this is a vastly important film for them, which we've already discussed it back in our Matrix episodes, because I, I made a joke about it, I think, during the end of the, the third Matrix movie, but that big baby head that Neo is talking to at the end, that's yeah. the Wizard of Oz. That's 100% the Wizard of Oz. And the oh, Machine yeah. City is 100% the Emerald City. I mean, it's it's a very clear influence. So Yeah, they said they watched it like every Thanksgiving. That was like their tradition. It's the touchstone a- movie for them. Which is so like in this one, you know, this was part of the idea that uh, Dorothy uh, starting off her journey and she's got the dog uh, yeah. that barks at everything. Uh, yeah, and, uh, that's true. Yeah. But so you're seeing the connections with a twist. Like if, yeah. in this case, it's like, what if Dorothy fucked Toto? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or wanted to. Wanted to fuck. <laughs> well, you know, when you when you live with a movie for years and years and years and see it many times the way that they had the wizard of oz sometimes i think you start to like pick up on things even if you've seen a movie like 30 times like you'll you you can start to see little things that or or have revelations about that movie that you might not have early on and that kind of happened with her watching the wizard of oz around this time because she started having a conversation with with lily about it about how there's something kind of missing from her experience with the film because she, she says, that, you know, Dorothy, like Odysseus in the Odyssey, goes on this profound journey. But she says, and this is another quote from Lana, Dorothy is pretty much the same at the end as she is at the beginning, whereas Odysseus goes through such an epic shift in his identity. So that was kind of their starting point for this. And they also wanted to create a, a female sci-fi hero that wasn't this typical strong and stoic type, a character trait that had even applied to female heroes in the genre. I mean, we talk about how great it is to see someone like Ellen Ripley as the the protagonist of an action movie, because especially yeah. in you know, the late 70s when Alien came out, that was very unusual. But Ellen Ripley, as we discussed in that episode, was written as a man. That character was was not written as a as a female. And even though you've got Sigourney Weaver in the role, they still, the character is still written as a man, just with a female actor in the role. So they wanted to create a character that was more specifically written to be a female. They wanted a hero in the vein of Dorothy or Alice from Alice in Wonderland, a hero that would negotiate conflict and complex situations with intelligence and empathy instead of wanting to just immediately fight it's it's interesting to look at different uh, archetypes of characters um especially when those those particular types of characters are played by a specific gender mm-hmm. and switching it seeing how that affects that character but the interactions with other characters and the world that those characters are in especially right. if it's based on any sort of you know, version of reality. I mentioned before we started rolling today that uh, the wife and I just finished reading um, Christmas Carol, but it's a uh, gender bent. It's a gender bent version of uh, Christmas Carol where, where Ebenezer Scrooge is played is portrayed as a woman. And it's really interesting to see, uh, and of course, you know, mid 1800s London, um, you know, how that, how that affects how you view that character 
and everything that happens within that story, you know, according to societal norms at the time. And uh, yeah, and this is this plays right into that because it, it it's deeper. It's there's more layers to the character, and um, yeah, I mean, there's just something. It's, it's, it's richer, you know. Yeah. So, and, and Gary I, I, kind of made a joke about this before, but the the idea for Kane, uh, the origin of Kane, the character that Channing Tatum would end up playing, literally was inspired by Toto. Like that Lana, there's a quote from Lana. She says, yes, Dorothy has to protect her Toto who's always barking at everyone. And that was sort of the origin of Kane. So that what Gary was not joking when he said that. No, it uh, 100% was. Um, also, I mean, even as a, a stupid male, I recognized in the protagonist is presented more like written as a female. I think I read somewhere like Jupiter Jones asked like 105 questions in this film, which reminds me exactly <laughs> of my wife. So this is... <laughs> This, it, it's perfectly done. Well done, Wachowskis. Every time y'all are watching a movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like keeping tally of both of them. I had two notebooks and I was just making a mark each time. So despite Jeff Robinov's desire to create an original franchise, most of Hollywood was pretty ambivalent towards producing and marketing completely original material. Because in the years since The Matrix, this is, you know, the development on this started 10 years after the matrix it came out what 16 years after the matrix hollywood changed a lot during that time hollywood changed to the point where there was a there was a bigger focus on producing movies based on existing franchises books video games and of course comic books i mean everything in hollywood changed in 2008 when iron man came out yeah. uh, and the success of that and the and the continued success of the mcu uh, and i and i'm not going to shit on those movies i love the mcu but it did create this feeling in Hollywood where they everything had to be part of this big shared universe franchise. And if it wasn't an already known quantity, it's even harder to get off the ground. A lot of interviews you see during this time, like uh, Lana just constantly talks about that. And like it's it's where uh, she says, like, it's almost like as if overnight having original ideas like became, you know, taboo or something. Like yeah. you couldn't you couldn't get away with it in Hollywood. It was uh, it was. You were the odd man out when, when everything used to be artistically uh, minded. You know, you wanted right. new and cool ideas. And I don't know. So you, you can constantly, I guess, through this whole series, see her battling with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in 1999, it was different. Like there were a lot of, you know, if you look at the movies in 1999, there were, it was primarily original ideas, all the big stuff. I mean, there were things based on books like, let's say, Fight Club, you know, is based on a, a book, but the book was not very well known at the time. But that book didn't blow up until well after the movie. But it wasn't a bunch of just known properties and and comic books, and specifically in the late nineties, like were a considered dead in the water as far as <laughs> as far as uh, filmic adaptations go. Oh yeah. So when they were conceptualizing Jupiter Ascending, they tried to create an original narrative, but they did want to use elements that were traditional enough for a Hollywood studio. And you see that a lot in the movie, like, you know, the chase scenes and all the stuff that you see in big Hollywood, like action movies, but they wanted to do it within this framework of an original story. So Jupiter Ascending would end up reuniting the Wachowskis with a lot of their previous collaborators, both from Cloud Atlas and from the Matrix films. You know, we talked about how on Cloud Atlas, there weren't a lot of returning people on that one, uh, just because of the nature of how that film had to be produced and had to be funded and everything. It was kind of complicated. So I think that had a lot to do with it. But on this one, they kind of bring those worlds together, the people who worked with them on The Matrix and on V for Vendetta and on Speed Racer and some of the people that they met 
while working on Cloud Atlas, and they kind of brought those teams together almost on this one. Uh, Grant Hill, who we mentioned last episode, their longtime producer, he was back on board, as was composer Michael Giacchino, uh, cinematographer John Toll, editor Alexander Berner, and production designer Hugh Badup, all of whom had worked with them on Cloud Atlas. Then you've got costume designer Kim Barrett, who'd worked with them on everything since the first Matrix. She's back, as was uh, the special effects designer and, of course, the creator of Bullet Time, John Gaeta, and visual effects supervisor Dan Glass, who is, you know, John Gaeta is, he, he's the one who gets a lot of the praise because of Bullet Time, you know, and, and he does some innovative stuff here as well. But Dan Glass is the man on the ground on this particular production. I was sure. just going to give a shout out to Kim Barrett because um, yeah, that's one of the things that uh, I think was really fascinating visually was uh, was the costumes. Uh, you know, we had the Earth costumes were, you know, had, you know, to make them very standard fare, but you know, yeah. to look a particular, I'll go notice? ahead and say bland sort yeah. of way to where when once they get off planet, you know, it's very elaborate, very 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 yeah, and it's. Um, it's really fantastic. Like every garment has so many intricate details that it, it you have to see this in the high def. Just, yeah, there's a lot. Just to really get all those little nuances. But did you uh, notice and- that Mila Kunis is wearing um, blue and white gingham shirt that is the same pattern as Dorothy's dress when she first of course, meets Kane? Of course, <laughs> I didn't oh, even think man. about that. Yep. Nice. I, know, I know they did some fun stuff like they threw the uh, space station five is that what it was called from 2001 like it's apparently in the background and some of the space scenes oh, yeah. you can see it floating in there and nice. all of that uh, i was going to mention um a- another guy there that's on their crew that um I, for some reason when i looked up supplemental stuff on this one i kept seeing him everywhere jeremy woodhead is his name he's the special yeah. or makeup effects you know yeah we talked um, about him last week because he was one of the uh the the effects the makeup effects guys on cloud atlas right right yeah so so he he's back on this one but he, i think he he was talking about this was like his sixth thing with the wachowskis like mm-hmm. he's just always brought in but I definitely recognized it in some of those hairstyles uh from like speed racer <laughs> seemed like they yeah. just rolled into here but, uh, <laughs> oh yeah for sure <laughs> anyway And while the film's lead roles were filled by actors who were new to the Wachowskis repertoire, there were a few familiar faces in some of the supporting roles. You've got Cloud Atlas's uh, Baiduna. She appears as a bounty hunter named Razo, who looks pretty fucking cool. And like she's she looks like she stepped out of the rave scene from the uh, the third Matrix movie. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Then you've got to be fair, Baiduna always looks pretty badass. She's. I, she's becoming like one of my favorite actors after these couple of movies. I want to see her do so much more. I've also been watching Sense Eight, and she's my favorite character on there. I think I mentioned that last week, but I think Same. she's just, I think she's just amazing. She she finally got me to the point of like, and this is as this is high up on the celebrity list for for me that that I Google image searched her and just scrolled yeah. for a while. <laughs> Nothing else creepy. I just scrolled for a while. Just, just wanted to look, look at, at her for a bit. <laughs> But then he uh, let out. Then he let out just a really soft, subtle. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that probably did happen. Yes, uh, you've got James DeArcy as Jupiter's father. Of course, he had been in uh, in Cloud Atlas as well. Speed Racers Kick Gurry plays Jupiter's cousin Vladdy. 
Uh, even you've got Tim Piggott Smith, who he had played Creedy in V for Vendetta. Remember the evil Creedy? Uh, and he appears here under a lot of layers of makeup as the owl splice advisor to Kalik named Maledictes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Kalik herself, she's played by a British actress named Tuppence Middleton, who after Jupiter Ascending, she's she would also star in Sensate for the Wachowskis. She's really great on there as well. I like her. Yeah, yeah. Riley. But the film's lead roles were filled by Channing Tatum and Mila Kunis, and then you've got Eddie Redmayne and Douglas Booth making up the rest of the Abrasics clan. Uh, nice. Don't forget Terry Gilliam; he's in there. You can't forget Terry Gilliam. It's a it's a it's a <laughs> cameo, but it's a great it's a great almost perfect cameo for Terry Gilliam. Oh yeah, yeah, and that, I think like right after he appears, that somebody tells her she has to fill out the twenty seven B slash six form or yeah. something. So it's all straight out of us. Uh, I guess that was the old show, wasn't it, when we did Brazil? But yeah, you know, it's well, uh, that whole sequence is straight out of Brazil, though. The entire yeah. thing, uh, it's really wonderful. Yeah, yeah, um, it's clearly an homage to that. And uh, yeah, very, very cool. I read in several places that Natalie Portman was originally the idea to be cast for Jupiter Jones, uh, but dropped out second time, Natalie. Piece of crap. <laughs> uh, I don't think she dropped. I don't think she dropped out of cloud atlas she i don't think she ever got that i think she was just one person in consideration for it right? maybe that's it but then they were looking at like rooney mara but then mia kunis who's like really tight with natalie came in and well they, they had were, done uh black black swan together i was gonna say like it was maybe it was just part of their feud spilling <laughs> over from black swan <laughs> so, i heard that was based on a true story um, <laughs> what's weird about this one is there's not like i mean there are people you barely know i guess throughout the movie but this movie just feels packed with stars already like it yeah uh, mia kunis at this point's already doing stuff and uh she's yeah, i would star. say yeah <laughs> well I mean, i'm just saying it's not like this is channing tatum's first movie like he's right, already yeah. done 21 jump street and magic mike's hit at this point so like he's he's a big uh, you know i don't know what eddie redmayne's done before this but I, well he i would want to be he I'd won be an Oscar. Not knowing anything about Eddie Redmayne, thank you. He won an Oscar the year that this movie came out. Oh, was wasn't there? The, wasn't there uh, footage? Wasn't there footage of him getting told that he had been nominated for an Oscar while he was on set, like in costume on set of Jupiter? I don't Ascent? know. I don't know that the timing would work on that because he he won an Oscar the year that this movie came out, which means he would have gotten no- nominated after this movie was released okay i want to because i thought because it was so funny to me for whatever reason i pieced it together in my brain that he from some footage that he had been told on set while he's in costume for this movie that he had been nominated for an oscar and you can kind of see him die inside (laughs) Your, your first mistake todd is is you are talking about him being in costume that is what eddie redmayne wears that is you know that that's just how he dresses. This is just how I, this is just how I show up to set. <laughs> they were like, we had to anyway, get you over the costume. Wait, th- you know what? Never mind. Eddie's good. Eddie's good, everybody. Just get him out there. Channing Tatum's, right. Channing Tatum's dog dick. <laughs> okay, so Todd, let's get into uh, let's get into your little yeah. Star Trek shit. Hey, every every week we <laughs> take a look at uh, all these people and and we ask, who am I trekking with? So uh, is, that what is that what we call it? Who am I trekking with? Yeah, I think, that's we, what I think we changed the name. It. 
I think that I mean, we changed the name of the segment. <laughs> I thought that was a thing you guys came up with. I don't know. No, I didn't come up with anything. Todd's a loose cannon. It's hard to tell. He's a wild card. I'm, a, I'm everywhere, guys. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we've had, we've had a, you know, a few weeks here where it's just been nobody, guys. Just been nobody. But I am happy to announce with Jupiter Ascending, we have three people who have been right. in Star Trek. Wow. Yes. So Tell me who. Got, Tell me who. We've got Mr. Tim Connolly, who plays Trigger. He's uncredited, but he's also a stunt performer. And he did, uh, he was uh, Carl Urban's stunt double for Star Trek Into Darkness in 2013. And he okay. also uh, was the fight coordinator for Star Trek Picard, the season one, episode 10, episode titled at an arcadia ego part two um that was in 2020 and then we've got cliff mm, cliff fleming uh who's credited as pilot but he's a helicopter pilot aerial coordinator and he did star trek for the voyage home he was a helicopter pilot that was good one yeah that was in 1986 and uh, then he also did J.J. Abrams' Star Trek. And so these Star are mostly um, mostly stunt performers so far. So far. Uh, but last but not least, we have Mr. David Ahala, uh, who plays Ibis. He's uh, one of the bounty hunters that goes to uh, collect uh, Channing Tatum's character. Yeah. Uh, he is Cleveland Booker. He uh, portrays Captain Michael Burnham's love interest in uh as of this recording 14 episodes of star trek discovery oh wow. uh, if you're having if you're having that if you're having trouble picturing who he is um he's also in dark knight he is one of the guys who brings joker's body to michael jai uh, uh michael jai white's character okay uh, for, for to collect the bounty he's, yeah, he's yeah. credited in dark knight as bounty hunter oh um, so two bounty hunters the two bounty hunters, yeah. <laughs> but he also he's uh, he's done a bunch of episodes of Supergirl and a whole bunch of other stuff. He's pretty cool. And that's everybody in Star Trek. Oh, we, oh, we're bringing that back. I'm glad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so when Mila Kunis describes her first experience with the film, she talks about going to the Warner Brothers offices to read the script. So since the Wachowskis prefer to keep their projects as secretive as possible, uh, they weren't sending the scripts out to anyone instead requiring actors to come to the warner brothers offices and actually read them there so she said the script was massive like 300 pages long and uh, it described every single like visual element of the film as well essentially as she put it uh building the entire world right there on paper and this is unusual for a script but this is kind of how the wachowskis work and she's one of those people that she says like it's hard until you see it all fleshed out. Like you don't understand even half of it, which is yeah. always the, the weird thing. It was like, they're being so secretive. They don't want the script to leak out. And it sounds like 90% of the people that read their scripts, like have no fucking clue what's happening. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, well a, a typical script is typically the rule for a, a script is like one page equals one minute of screen time. Yeah. But the Wachowskis like to write things out. Like even in, in action scenes, they write a lot of the, a lot of the uh, the big pieces of the action scene out on paper, which is unusual because a lot of writers will just like write and then they fight, you know, and then <laughs> they work with the you know stunt coordinators and stuff like that and actually flesh out the fight. Uh, but the Wachowskis, they want they they've got this entire thing visualized in their head and they put all of that on paper. 
And one of the key figures for bringing that world from the paper to the screen was a conceptual designer named George Hull. So Hull has been an instrumental figure in the film industry for decades. Uh, his work has helped to shape the visual language of sci-fi films for like the past four decades. He got his start working for George Lucas and ILM and has had a hand in the looks of everything from the 1997 special editions of The Empire Strikes Back uh, and Jumanji to Avatar, several of the Transformers movies, and uh, even some Marvel movies, like uh, several Marvel movies. And next, I think it's next year, it's coming out, Matt Reeves is the Batman. Yeah. He's still he's, you know, still working on some huge, huge movies. Nice. And he's been a conceptual artist for the Wachowskis on every one of their films, including V for Vendetta, since The Matrix Reloaded. So he did both of the Matrix sequels, uh, everything, so Speed Racer, all of that. He, so he's worked with the Wachowskis a lot, and he knew that they were filmmakers who never wanted to repeat themselves. Uh, so for Jupiter Ascending, he says they wanted a visual style. This is a quote from him. Want, they wanted a visual style for their film that was unlike anything they had seen before. You know that about the Wachowskis. Like, they don't seem like they ever repeat themselves too much. I mean, there's, there's clearly, like, moments where... Yeah, but even the uh, Matrix sequels, like, they're, they're not rehashing stuff from previous movies i'm just thinking like, you could see like if you want to count v for vendetta or something like you can see some stuff there that's obviously pulling from like the matrix universe or something like that but this film i don't think you could pick up on necessarily being like matrix or no. god help a speed racer like i mean nothing looks like right. that and, and so right. uh, it, it, it is one thing you could say for them you would not it, you'd have a hard time necessarily like looking at any one of these movies or any two of these movies and guessing if you didn't know already that they, they happen to be the same people. Yeah. From a visual standpoint, they, they don't have like a set style. Cause we even talked about that, how the matrix movies are darker, darker, this like green glow over everything. And that's a vast difference from speed racer. Who's bright primary colors, you know, very, very different looking film. So yeah, they, they do not like to repeat themselves and that's what they tell their designers. They, and their designers, that's a, for a designer because they're, they're encouraged to come up with designs that are way out there. It looks like, and I, I think I was a little more critical of this aspect particularly uh, than I was when I first watched the movie. It looks like there may have been just as much, uh, green screen stage uh, as uh, Speed Racer, but I think it was integrated more smoothly. Uh, it looks yeah, less. I don't. It looks less obviously fake. <laughs> there's not. There's definitely not as much as Speed Racer because Speed Racer right. was almost almost 100 percent shot on green screens. Right. Whereas there there is a lot in this movie that was shot practically. But there there is green screen work. There's a lot of stuff that's being done in this that could could not be done. Uh, yeah, 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 it's unavoidable with something like this. <laughs> so George Hull, you know, he's given this this freedom by the Wachowskis to come up with just crazy designs and his focus specifically on this film, because there's all kinds of designers doing different things, but George Hull specifically is working on the film's spaceships. John Gaeta, who we've, we've talked about a lot on this series, he was one of Hull's main collaborators on the film and together they came up with the idea of what they called float components. Uh, he describes it as, and this is like a super nerdy description, but this is how George Hall described it. A, a, he described it as localized gravitation or magnetic field to suspend and control objects in space. So basically, he took this concept of separation and drew spaceships with suspended sails and vehicles with wings that look 
like they're made up of segmented armor plates, but they're not actually, the plates aren't actually touching each other. And you see that a lot in this movie. And it, it, it allows the design of some of the ships to change based on what kind of moves they need to do. It's, it's I think, incredibly cool looking. Uh, yeah, it gives, it gives them kind of, you know, for uh, you know, my perspective, it kind of gives them so, almost like an animal or like an insect-like quality mm-hmm. that yeah. look like wings and folding and up. They and they took a like lot that. of design from various animals and, and specifically from insects. So that was actually nice. a, an actual inspiration. It's, it's funny. I, I'm currently reading or rereading Rick Remender's comic book, Low. And there's a similar concept to a lot of the ships and the armor in those comics where like pieces of them aren't actually attached. Like they're not actually touching. And as I was reading it, like last week, I was wondering like, how would that translate visually? Like if the comic were ever to be adapted into a movie. And then I watched this movie and kind of got the answer. (laughs) And it turns out it looks pretty cool. Well, uh, you know, um, you know, a spoiler for anyone who hasn't caught up in Discovery, but I was going to say a, a, no, no spoilers, but yeah, yeah, yeah. At, at some at that. some point, Discovery goes through a, a through a refit where the nacelles are actually detached from the rest of the hull. And oh, cool! Yeah, that's actually a period of Starfleet where everything it kind of looks like that, and uh, it's huh. it's been a it's been an interesting shift on that show to see you know visually you know the technology and ships leaping forward yeah to something like this which is pretty well, pretty dope speaking of star trek george hall was the conceptual illustrator on star trek generations as well oh <laughs> cool very cool. and you know, say what you will about the film and i'm sure we'll all get into our thoughts here in a bit uh but these spaceships in this movie are incredibly like mm. they're, they're just they're gorgeous i think yeah. they're incredible designs yeah uh, instead of the rigid like practical vehicles that we see in something like star wars uh the spaceships here are really opulent vehicles that reflect the personalities of the universe's elite and i think they're incredible looking like lana wachowski and some of the behind the scenes stuff she's like spaceships and movies are all so damned ugly like why do they all have to be so ugly yeah. so they, they kind of took the idea that you know just like now you know with boats and cars and you know vehicles rich people get the people that can afford it you know if they go get a yacht they're getting the most opulent you know it's a reflection of your status so why not treat spaceships the same way and the richest people in the richest people in the universe what would their ships look like right you know and they all look a little bit different like the the different siblings in the abrasics clan they're theirs are all very different looking You've got, I can't remember, Douglas Booth's character, whatever his, Titus, his, it's all like mahogany floors and like really classic looking furniture. Whereas Eddie Redmayne's looks like he's the fucking emperor from Star Wars or something because everything's (laughs) like dark and there's a giant window for him to look out. But there's also like uh, these structures that look like they're part of a cathedral, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's stuff that you don't normally see in a spaceship design that I think makes, gives this movie a very, very unique look. That was a big yeah, thing with of stuff was the, yeah, exactly. Like in every other aspect of design, like with vehicles and everything, like they have that, you know, the super rich usually have like sleek looking shit. And, yeah. uh, and it's cool to see the, the, the rich Lords here uh, have their own designs. And of course they would have custom built stuff. Of course. Yeah. 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 And they look, and it, it just makes, it, it makes it feel unlike most other, sci-fi movies because that's not something you see very often 
the majority of Jupiter Ascending was filmed at the Warner Brothers studio in Levenston in Southeast England before moving on to do some location shooting in Chicago. Uh, it's funny because I think this is the first Wachowski movie to do any. They're from Chicago. They love Chicago. Uh, every time you see them on set, one of them has like a Chicago Bulls sweatshirt or something on. Uh, they love it. But this is the first of their films to actually be shot at all in Chicago. Hmm. Uh, but the scene, the major scene that's in Chicago, which we'll get into in a second, the big chase scene is like a love letter to Chicago. Uh, it really is like the way that they, they film the city. So and perhaps learning their lesson after the reception of the Burley Brawl in The Matrix Reloaded, the Wachowskis used very few digital doubles in this movie, instead relying pretty heavily on practical stunts. Uh, and the biggest sequence, the one I just mentioned from both a stunt and visual effects point of view, also happens to be, in my opinion, one of the best action set pieces in the Wachowskis' career so far. Uh, and again, we'll, we'll get into our thoughts on this movie as a whole, but you can't deny some of the action set pieces in this movie. And the eight-minute-long chase sequence that takes place throughout downtown Chicago is pretty close to the top of the list as far as Wachowski action scenes goes. Yeah, that's pretty dope. I think a lot of other filmmakers may have gone full CGI for this scene. Like if this were a Marvel movie, this would be almost entirely CGI. But the Wachowskis wanted to film real actors and their stunt doubles as much as possible. And they also wanted to acquire real and very flexible black background plates, not CGI environments. So even the scenes where it is Channing Tatum on a green screen, they wanted the background plate to not be just an animated CGI environment. They wanted actual footage of the city. So much like they had done with Bullet Time on the first Matrix, the filmmakers and their crew, they, they developed an entirely new technology, basically, to, to achieve this. So this thing was dubbed the PanoCam. You can find images of it online, but basically it's a multi-camera array that allowed them to shoot panoramic plates that could be digitally stitched together. So it, it's six cameras. Uh, they're using red Epic digital cams, for those who are curious. Mm. Uh, so they've got them stacked in two tiers on three, so six cameras, three on top, three on the bottom, kind of in this weird array, and then mounted on a camera rig. What this did, by shooting it this way, is that it gave the filmmakers a combined 140 horizontal degree and 60 vertical degree view once they stitched it together. So basically, all six of these cameras are shooting at the same time, and then they stitch all of those together, and it gives them this huge environment made wow. of real footage that they're able to move essentially a digital environment not unlike what they had done on uh with the with the, like domes the digital domes that they created for speed racer you know yeah but yeah. they're using real footage for it yeah it's pretty impressive i mean because once you're able to overlap the footage and do what you want with it like they've done it so many you know they get so much of it it's on a helicopter but then they're able to make it look like it's not like it's moving right. independently of like what a helicopter would do Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's really cool to, so they're, they're, instead of being relegated just to the rectangle that's on the screen, they had this full environment that they could play around with. Yeah. And so, especially with, with that wide of an angle, uh, a view angle, you know, if you're, if you're piloting between buildings or along the river in Chicago and you're like, okay, well, we're going to pass this really visually, um, uh, fascinating building here on the left so we're just we're gonna rotate it so i imagine it just rotates yeah so yeah, you can yeah. we can get an angle of this building and then we can rotate it back you know to get here comes the sears tower on the right okay let's rotate it to the right a little bit you know and you got plenty of room to play with it's pretty pretty awesome 
So this is how visual effects supervisor Dan Glass explains it. He says, traditionally, you'd station photographers atop many, many buildings and midpoints and ground level stations and amass thousands, if not millions of photographs to essentially map out your city and project that on to basic geometry and end up with something that looks pretty real and is photogenic. But to actually take that to photo real is a huge amount of effort that you don't always have time for. So this is a time-saving process as well because uh, you can create an environment made of real photographic footage, but the way to do it in the past was much more time consuming, much more expensive uh, because you're literally taking, like he says, millions of photographs and stitching Mm. them all together. Yeah. Plus this chase sequences was taking place in a pre-dawn light. Uh, This was very, a very specific desire by the filmmakers. Like this is kind of their, their magic hour of how they want Chicago, their hometown that they love to be seen. Yeah. Uh, but that, that pre-dawn light only occurs for about 10 or 15 minutes just before sunrise. So you get this very specific saturated blue all over the whole picture, but still you've, you've still got the warm contrast from the street lights and the office buildings in the background. And so it, it makes for a really visually stunning looking environment so by using this panicam technique, they were able to get the material much more quickly instead of having to fly out like five or 10 times and where you could only shoot for 10 minutes at a time. Well, they said, I, I swear I saw in the footage thing um, that they they went out in six minute increments. Like yeah. they had to, uh, I mean, the, this whole process took months yeah. um, to, to get this done. And so that's, that's just your background plates for the sequence. Obviously, there's a lot more that goes into it. Uh, but I'm not going to get too far into it because one, that's probably boring. Uh, and two, I'm not even close to being an expert and probably couldn't explain it correctly. Anyway, I found a lot of this in a, a really good article on fxguide.com where they interview a lot of the, the filmmakers. They interview Dan Glass and John Gata and all these guys who developed the technique and they talk in a lot of technical jargon in that article, but it's still very interesting if you are interested in how this is getting done. So I would, Instead of listening to me ramble about stuff that I don't really know that much about, I would say go listen to those guys ramble about things that they know a lot about. <laughs> they basically had Channing Tatum put on rollerblades and fly off the sides of buildings. That's what they were well, going for. <laughs> well, I mean, Channing Tatum did wear rollerblades a lot of this. <laughs> that's, a, that's not actually a joke. Like he did. So they, they wanted to capture as much of this in camera as possible. So they did film real stunt performers hanging 50 feet below a helicopter as they skated around Chicago skyscrapers in these anti-gravity boots. So they had these boots on with like LED lights on them. Stunt performers literally hanging from a helicopter and performing while another helicopter is shooting them. And then they had to get some close up and medium views of the actors of Channing Tatum and Mila Kunis. And those are filmed on green screen Uh, Plus some digital doubles, but only when absolutely necessary. But the green screen was even pretty intensive because there's footage of like Channing Tatum and he's on, he's in rollerblades when they've got little LEDs on the bottom that they, and they'll digitally take the, you know, the wheels out, but he's not just on like the ground. He's on like angled uh, uh, treadmills that are also painted green that they're going to paint out. Like it's, it's, it's a very physically involved shoot for the actors as well i mean there's there there are scenes that they're shooting in downtown chicago where he's zipping along on rollerblades and wires with mila kunis on his back like that wasn't done necessarily in studio the whole time either they shot on the streets it's this the the shoot for this movie looks 
pretty insane from a physical standpoint. Yeah. It makes me wonder if like stunt workers, like we got to get some stunt workers on here and ask them these questions, but I wonder if it's like, you know, soldiers that go to war too, like when they come back and like mundane, normal life just doesn't work anymore for them or something. <laughs> I'm always thinking like stunt performers, like one of them leaves this shoot, like has a date and like the, yeah. the, the woman's talking to him or like, are you even listening to me? You know what? Listen, <laughs> so wait, so wait, you, you want from me to- a helicopter 15 minutes ago <laughs> being dragged through Chicago. <laughs> so you want me to, uh, so you want me to take this helicopter and you want me to uh, very closely pilot, pilot it between these buildings uh, while some A-list actors hang off the end of it. Um, and no one's going to shoot at me. <laughs> Sign me up. I'm down. Let's make it happen. <laughs> so Sounds other, like other parts of this sequence uh, required the characters to, uh, to duck and weave over bridges uh, because that, the thing about the sequence is it's not all it, it there are so many elements to it because there, there are elements where it's Channing Tatum and Mila Kunis like on the streets you know he's literally like gliding along in his gravity boots on the streets between cars and stuff and then it turns into this whole thing with the I forget the names of what they call the spaceships but these spaceships weaving in and out of these buildings in Chicago like it's a it's very very involved and some of these scenes they had to basically film with the crane on the back of a barge that would allow them to swoop over the water because there are sequences where they're going over the water and even underwater and this crane would allow them to swoop between 20 feet off the water and to about just a foot over the surface Uh, so those shots are not CG like that is that's all practical. Wow. Yeah. It all, it really does feel like they kind of learned their lesson with overdoing the CGI environments on the Matrix sequels, especially yeah. in that burly brawl that has aged pretty poorly. Uh, but I mean, at the time, that was kind of innovative technology, but they, I think they can kind of see they're learning that maybe we need to do something that's going to be come across as a little more timeless. Yeah. Yeah. Some of that stuff is just, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of stuff, especially some of the stuff that we've seen for the new Matrix film um, and for the marketing with it, you know, they can do a hell of a lot with digital technology, but there's some things that just can't be replaced. No, you can't because you, you always know. Yeah. You can always tell when it's a when it's a digital stunt it's person. A little too perfect. Or, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah. You can always <laughs> tell. The Jupiter Ascending was originally set to be released on July 25th, 2014, but on June 3rd of that year, so this is a month and a half before this movie is supposed to come out, the film's release was delayed all the way to the following February due to poor test screenings. They had done some test screenings in April, didn't go very well, uh, so they wanted to re, re, uh, do some reshoots and you know, re-edit some things, and it also they, it needed to give the filmmakers some additional time to complete over 2,000 effect shots. These delays and additional post-production work caused the film's budget to balloon from about $130 million, which is already high, to over $200 million. Oof. Jeez. And then when the film was finally released on February 6, 2015, which is never a great time for a film to be released. I mean, this is changing a little bit now, uh, but especially in 2015, when people saw that this got pushed from a midsummer, like, peak movie-going season date to the following February, people assumed the worst. Yeah. And when it opened, the reception was not great. Uh, it currently holds the lowest Rotten Tomatoes score of any of the films that the Wachowskis has directed. Uh, it, it's slightly higher than Ninja Assassin, which they produced but didn't really have much of a hand in otherwise. Uh, but other than that, this is the lowest scoring Wachowski movie. 
Vulture's review of the film called it, quote, inane from the first frame to last, while British film critic Mark Kermode, do you think that's how his name is? Kermode? Yeah. Um, You know what's funny is, yeah, he's super popular in... uh, In England? In England, yeah. Um, one of our friends, he's married to a British guy. He he, he turned me on to his podcast. Uh, oh, yeah. Anyway, am, yeah. Am I saying his name correctly, though? I think so, yeah, yeah. Kermode? Okay, so he said that Jupiter Ascending is a lot of things. Bonkers, all over the place, incoherent, preposterous, ridiculous dialogue that George Lucas would have thrown in the bin, spectacularly overwrite performances. I'm not going to say it's good, but I'd be lying if I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> if so there you go uh we'll get into our thoughts on it but first before we do that gary oh let's hear what the internet has to say about (laughs) jupiter ascending well the internet has a lot to say and they sound tired doing it because it sounds like somebody needs a nap So I'm gonna, uh, I'll try to go short first. Let's. Uh, I got a budge here. We can cut off whatever. Here's one. Here's Michael. He says, "Horrible, just terrible. Don't waste your time." Wachowskis are on crack for thinking they could make this. Don't even want to waste my time with a review. Well, I mean, you technically did, did yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Woody says it's a shame. Honestly, over the last week, I've watched every other film by the Wachowskis except Bound, which I'll likely watch tomorrow. This is not a short one. Sorry. This feels nothing like them. There's a real lack of content that's always let the Wachowski stand out. There's no sense of grand philosophy, which is such a big part of what makes those previous movies great. However, that's not my problem with this film. This is just a disappointment due to my love of the directors. My problem with this film is actually how boring it actually it, it is. This reminds me of those bland fantasy films in years gone, like The Golden Compass. Every second of this film is just money melting on the screen. It's visually so grand, Yet so flat, I despise the way this film presents itself. Oh, and remember the phenomenal action of The Matrix and even Speed Racer? Yeah, that's gone here too in flavor in favor of shitty quick cut action that plagues modern Hollywood. This film sucks, and I highly recommend skipping it as I spent the entire runtime just waiting for it to end. That was more well thought out than I was going to give it credit for, but <laughs> that was pretty. Yeah, man. <laughs> uh, all right, how about how about uh, Defective Saint says, more like stupider ascending, am I right? <laughs> oh, that's the whole review. That is. <laughs> Hunter House says, more like Jupiter ascending, right? <laughs> oh, man, those guys should meet. <laughs> should. Uh, Michael and says. Then, and then fight each other. <laughs> Michael says, this is like a bootleg of the Star Wars prequels. Uh, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Joey says, "Wait, what? How many times have we have have you rewound or restarted this movie to see what you missed when there is a new dialogue, only to find out you didn't miss anything and it's just a hot mess that seems like it was edited together by a three year old trying to tell you a story about something? This movie is two hours long, and I've already watched the first twenty five minutes of it enough times to eclipse that before I gave in and read reviews just to see what the fuck was happening." And after reading a few articles in my search results for Jupiter Ascending, confusing, it just does not seem worthy of any payoff that it could have. It's a stupid concept. Poor script. Confusing timelines. I'm done with this. A person I follow on Letterboxd named Brat. I always like their reviews. Uh, Brat Pitt? No, just... Oh, maybe it used to be be Brat Pitt. It used to be Brat Pitt, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. she's funny. She's funny. She gave it two and a half stars. 
But she says, uh, Channing Tatum plays a genetically engineered military wolf who zooms around in zero gravity roller skates because his wings were cut off. You know, everybody knows that wolves have wings. Bees are genetically designed to recognize royalty. That is something that Sean Bean, who is also genetically spliced with a bee, has to say with a straight face. The main plot point <laughs> is that a group of 14,000-year-old royal alien siblings are attempting to either marry or murder their 25-year-old human mommy. But the nuttiest part is, is that in the first 20 minutes, when Mia Kunis tries to sell her eggs to buy a $4,000 telescope on eBay. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I like that person. All right. Um, <laughs> Corgi the Great says, this is like a bad version of Battlefield Earth. I don't even know how the fuck that's possible. <laughs> Battlefield Earth was a bad version of Battlefield Earth, was it? <laughs> Lear says, I don't need to be disrespectful, but I think this is the worst movie I've ever seen. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I'll give one more here. Let's just do one more for the hell of it. This is Andrew. It does not matter how much good faith you put into trying to appreciate Jupiter ascending on any level. It will tie you down and stomp on the back of your neck repeatedly, pummeling you into such a dark place that you're left questioning if the Wachowskis are really responsible for making something like the Matrix. It's a true feat of brilliance that they can make something so terrible it makes you retroactively question everything you know. I will give a bit of credit for how good the film looks, especially on its earth sequences. There are some very, very pretty shots, but after an hour, the film slows down into the steaming hot turd dumping benign exposition into your lap. Even an Eddie Redmayne that must have been inspired by a child suffering from a severe peanut allergy, begging for their EpiPen isn't bad enough to bring even the tiniest bit of entertainment to this film. Do not watch this movie. You are worth more than this. <laughs> wow yeah, so one thing that that one actually got into it a little bit but i didn't see hear a lot of it in many of those but one thing it was it was a big talking point when the movie came out i remember this reading reviews uh was eddie redmayne's performance that was kind of one point one of the major points of criticism for this movie when when this movie came out in 2015 uh which you know people kind of zeroed in on it they they saw it as being over the top or unintentionally silly, yeah. uh, which led to him becoming possibly the first actor in history to win both an Oscar for his role in the theory of everything and a Razzie in the same year. <laughs> <laughs> but I would actually argue that Redmayne's performance is in fact intentionally silly and that he might be one of the few actors in the film that actually understands what kind of movie that he's in. I, okay. this, I would say this, um, somebody oh i think it was devin Faraci. i was reading his review back on badass digest when it came out and he described that if he had gone a little further he would buy the eddie redmayne was purposefully going over the top yeah <laughs> like he wasn't quite doing that though like he didn't feel he like was, he was quite i think he there. was i think he was there i think he made it oh man it makes <laughs> but, me... i mean this is a space opera space opera is a term that they throw around a lot when describing this movie and everything about it is operatic and big and overblown it takes all of kind of the stock elements of your typical big studio action movie and pushes them to their melodramatic breaking point and this is the case in you know the performances and the concepts and the action sequences. Uh, and I, I'm not going to pretend this is a great movie. Uh, it is in 
I think, probably the Wachowski's worst movie. Uh, but I don't think it's as bad as a lot of the reviews would have you think, because I think there, there's a you can easily focus on the elements of this that don't work uh, or the parts that you think don't work. Like I actually love Eddie Redmayne's performance in this because it's so weird, because like, it's just like, that's a fucking choice, dude. And I like I like I, stuff like that. I'm I like someone, this, like we the, said, I like someone swinging for the fences, even if they miss. It's more entertaining than somebody just being boring. This yeah, has got a great true. line in it, so I, I, I want to read this. This is from Devin Frotchie's review. It says, while Kudus is won as a lead and Tatum's charisma is hobbled by his character's haunted history, Eddie Redmayne makes up for all of it in his role as skinny baron with a sore throat. Redmayne <laughs> delivers most of his lines in a hoarse whisper, except when he suddenly explodes on a part of a sentence with the fury of a thousand Shatners. It's, <laughs> it's <a> bravely... <laughs> It shows it basically goes on to say it shows a lot of faith in his directors. It ends up being not quite campy enough to be legendary. One more outburst might have cemented it, but Redmayne <laughs> certainly is giving giving it his quivering best. <laughs> well, I guess then we should ask. Uh, let me ask you guys, like just straight up, what is your opinion on Jupiter ascending? <sighs> Who wants to go first? I just I'm just curious where we where, before we get into more. Just like further discussion on it. Just what was your, you had, neither of you had ever seen this before. Is that correct? Am I correct in saying that? That is I correct. actually, I actually had seen this. You had I, seen this before. I, I think I saw this in theaters. I um, definitely saw it in theaters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Gary, this was a first time watch for you. Yeah. And uh, well, perhaps last time watch. So we know where Gary stands on it. And uh, Todd, what was your initial reaction when you saw it in the theater? Do you remember? So when I saw it in the theater, I was like, um, I, I kept having this reoccurring thought of, oh, that looks cool. Oh, that looks cool. Hey, that looks cool. Wow, that looks really cool. Oh, that <laughs> looks cool. And I don't know that I, after that very first viewing, I don't know that I could have told you anything else about it. Right. Years later, here we are. And, uh, you know, we're going to cover, hey, guys, we're going to cover Jupiter Ascending. Okay. I have seen it before. I know Mila Kunis and Channing Tatum are in it. And I know it looks cool. I don't know that I can tell you anything else about it now, <laughs> but that kind of put me in a good place yeah, yeah. to watch it again and be like, okay, well let's, you know, let's revisit this thing and, you know, see how, see how it's aged and see if I view the, vil- the film differently. Um, I do not, unfortunately <laughs> it's again, <laughs> it looks, it looks amazing. They've done some, phenomenal visual things with this film and the cast is great but at the end of the day the story the motivations some of the acting choices just it all just kind of implodes on itself but it implodes into this thing that that looks really cool i think it's very it's very interesting regardless of if you think it all works and but i'll get into some of the stuff that i think definitely doesn't work and and we're probably the most harmful things to the film being being successful as a narrative because mm. visually you can't deny that it looks incredible and oh, you can't it's a deny beautiful it's a beautiful the, movie it is and you can't deny that the action sequences are not like in fucking incredible like okay. every one of them yeah. that first one with channing tatum you know fighting the the uh the the bounty hunters and then you've got the, uh, this chase sequence that we've already talked about like every time that there's an action sequence on on screen the mm. movie is working 100 percent uh, and some yeah. of the other stuff that it gets into that doesn't, but 
I, I can only, sorry, I just want to say, like, I mean, I don't want to shit on anything that anybody's like working on. I mean, my, I, I just found the film like not, I don't know, boring. I hate to say boring, but that's like the word like some people use. Like, it's kind of just, it, it, I never felt anything one way or the other. It felt like there was something, it felt like I didn't understand everything because I hadn't read the books before or something like that. Right. Like it was, mm -hmm. well, it, that's that's part of the I think the uh, the criticism that I'll get into about it from in my opinion as well. Well, for from my perspective, you know, like going through the Wachowskis, like all of their work, you know, I had like a whole uh, evolution through my appreciation for their work. Like it was <laughs> to go in from like, well, the Matrix is supposed to be a badass kung fu movie, right? And it's like, well, yeah, sort of, but also they do a lot of this other stuff and like philosophically they're they're interested in expressing ideas and blah, blah blah so by the time we got to cloud atlas i was like prepared i think i even said on that episode you don't watch this for the action sequences necessarily you know you're going to get them every once in a while but they're really like thoughtful and then he's this movie and i never i mean you know i tried i, I think there's obviously like some stuff they've got with capitalism or at least like uh you know the one percent or something but they're yeah. you know it never feels like it's at all that deep it feels like i i hate to say it but like there was the one i, I think i saw a couple that talked about it being like a young adult novel you know bunny actually after we watched it and, and she generally enjoyed it but she did ask me like she's like was this based on a book because it feels like it's based on a young adult book series yeah know? that's what it's got that like. real hunger games divergent mm -hmm. feel to it well, before I get into like the, the things that I think don't work, I, I do want to say a couple of things that I think that, that I really like about what they're trying to do with this movie. Uh, because I think that this movie, from just a conceptual point, from a sci-fi point of view, it's just the sort of sci-fi fantasy movie that we don't really see very often. Uh, this is sci-fi in the vein of, of something like maybe The Fifth Element, where there's more whimsy to its world and its designs. Because a lot of sci-fi movies these days... This is not a new thing, uh, but a lot of them are concerned with the science part of science fiction, right? Uh, wanting mm. everything to kind of have a basis in reality. And I think that's great. I think that's fine. And there's certainly a place for those types of movies. I love something like The Martian or Gravity, where the science is a, a big part of what makes those enjoyable. But sometimes it's fun to have a sci-fi movie that doesn't give a shit about any of that and just wants to bring a sense of wonder and awe to its sci-fi settings because like the you see like eddie redmayne's ship in this and that's it's not a practical ship that would work or you see titus's ship coming up through the the rings of saturn uh like it's breaking the water like it's a boat a submarine breaking the water yeah that looks awesome like yeah, cool. does it make any sense scientifically well probably and, and not because that like, would create a thousand asteroids that are just going to probably destroy a lot of stuff but it looks cool and it's fan yeah. service because it's like clearly based on like 20,000 under 20,000 leagues under right. the sea. And like, they're just, they're having fun. So you get like some of that. I never questioned, I never watched this movie for a second and questioned Channing Tatum's space rollerblades. Like I right. never, I never cared. Yeah. You're, and you're not mm -hmm. supposed to, because that, that's not the kind of sci-fi movie they're making. This is what they're doing here is they're basically making a fairy tale designed as as a sci-fi movie well nobody could make a lightsaber still to this day right yeah yeah well you know <laughs> exactly. it's funny you mentioned that that kind of it kind of lends some weight to my earlier statement of like this in a different time this could have been star wars yeah 
maybe or would just it not, have maybe just not Star this Wars time. though. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's go back well to that. Star um, Wars. Let's go back to that Wizard of Oz reference that Lana Wachowski made. So, in you think about it that that way, and Dorothy is Jup- uh, Jupiter is Dorothy. Basically, she that that's obviously very clear. She's stuck in this humdrum existence, you know, mm-hmm. uh, one where she seemingly has no means of escape, and she daydreams about the stars she obsesses over them because you know that's what her father was into she's saving up for a telescope as a means of some sort of escape this is essentially her her over the rainbow you know this is her her dreaming of life over the rainbow and then like dorothy she's whisked away to this magical world that's unlike anything that she's ever seen before and she suddenly becomes an important figure uh you know and and in the case of the wizard of oz it's because she actually dropped her house on a witch but and this it's because it's literally her birthright and then she I'm has kind of wishing i could see channing tatum seeing if i only had a brain <laughs> <laughs> um, and she has all these adventures and stuff and then in the end though she returns back to her life on earth or in in kansas but with a new outlook and a new understanding and a new appreciation that she didn't have before so it's a very similar uh, arc and I think that also, I think because of the way that it plays out in the movie, and then this is another thing that people probably didn't like about it, and maybe this is part of what gives it that young adult thing, is because this also gives us something that we've come to expect from the Wachowskis, and it's a lot of earnestness, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a lot of earnestness, and we've talked about that a lot uh, in, in the Wachowski movies, especially since Speed Racer, uh, and that can that can rub people the wrong way because this is not a cynical sci-fi movie and that we, we live in an era where people want cynical cinema, cynical science fiction. Uh, but this movie also has something that we've, another something that we've talked about in the Wachowski movies, which is uh, the theme of like revolution. Cause yeah, uh, whether or not you think it plays out as well as it should, this is probably the most overtly political movie that the Wachowskis have made as far as it being an actual part of the plot and not subtext. Mm. Uh, because. Okay. Yeah, I can see know, that. Gary, well, think, Gary think, mentioned it, but this movie is blatantly about the corrosive effects of capitalism. Yeah. I was going to say, mm. I could, I could certainly see where it's at. I don't think it's as executed as well as they've done it in the past with like, no, I, I would agree with that, but it's, it's the first time that they've, that it's not been subtext and it is actually part of the text. Uh, so they're, they're being very blatant about it. Uh, it's, it's villains are members of the upper, upper class who exploit their fellow human beings in order to extend their own lives uh, to them, to the, the Abrastics clan and maybe other clans across the universe. Who knows? Uh, other humans are little more than cattle, much like humans are little more than batteries to the machines in the matrix. It's, it's an incredibly similar concept when you start to think about it. Mm. It's kind of disappointing, honestly, like watching it, just how cool it looks. Uh, it's, I don't know, because I wanted to love it. Like I, I really did want to love it. And I, you know, I own it now. So there's that. Maybe <laughs> maybe one day I'll have children and they'll fall in love with it. I, mean, or I something. think there's stuff it, to love about it. I think I think that as a whole, it does not coalesce into a into a successful film. Well, uh, it's just it, where I was going with that too is it's sad because you can totally see how there's a universe there. Like there's right. there's a whole there's a whole thing to explore. Like if it were successful, they well, could I have created the next one. This is something that I, I kind of uh, was was 
going to refer to or I was referring to earlier that I wanted to get into is that I think one of the film's biggest flaws is that there's almost too much crammed into a single two hour movie. Uh, the, because the Wachowskis clearly have mapped out a huge backstory to this universe. They've built this universe in their minds or maybe even on paper somewhere. Uh, there's this entire class system that we only get glimpses of. There's this entire political system that we only get base level access to. Uh, we, we find out about, you know, splicing the, the idea of splicing human DNA with animal DNA, but why, how do they choose what humans or, or what, what animals and for what reasons they, there's this whole backstory that is very interesting. And we only get little bits of shorthand and that stuff's interesting as a way of building out the world, but it does make you wish that there was another like two movies for, to fill in a lot of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mentioned Jeremy Woodhead earlier, but like uh, for, for, you know, I, I just saw a bunch of interview stuff with him, but he, he, he talks about how like when they're working on the makeup effects and everything for these characters that there's like, you know, the Wachowskis come in and like they have like certain details worked out already because they've got like years of backstory for each character for like right. why they look, why they look and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so Which it's not about- unusual, but also like there's so much in this one that it becomes muddied and and confusing a little bit and and like i can follow the story i know some people complain about it i think the story itself is pretty straightforward but there's a lot of stuff about the idea of this serum made from humans that it's you know it's not explained where did that come from like and i don't need a backstory on everything but you need a little bit more to flesh it out and i think the only way to do this is to either make a six-hour movie or to make this into a trilogy well yeah, i think the best like an easy series or something yeah, yeah sure. well the best uh, i think the best explanation for the for the serum itself came from charlton heston yeah, it's sort of made the, out of people well you know that which, is oh, really green, which yeah. they also referenced in cloud atlas <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's <laughs> true i was gonna get huh. my uh my my hot take maybe it's a hot take i don't know um is Ooh, that i think say lukewarm yeah, it's a lukewarm take here we go um i think sense eight would have made a better franchise and or would have made a better film franchise and this would have made jupiter ascending would have made a better series i think they uh, listen well, i'm I mean, watching sense eight right now i'm only a little way through it but i definitely just watched an orgy in people's brains with multiple people and there's a uh, lot of those and i'm yeah, not sure series. i'm not sure that a film series would get <laughs> yeah. this done but uh, yeah yeah that's true uh, well the other biggest flaw i think of this movie is the casting like i like channing tatum mm. and i like mila kunis in the right roles i think they're both really good if they're put in the right role yeah. i think they are both woefully miscast in this movie and i it's think really the, weird i think the movie suffers from it i think i think neither one of those people seems like 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 natalie portman i could have totally bought i like, can definitely uh, see natalie portman in this um but yeah and, and also what's funny to me too is like it feels like they're playing a li- i don't know I, this may be too critical but just a nitpicky detail uh woodhead talks a lot about when they were going through uh you know channing tatum's makeup process you know and he was like well they wanted to be very particular they, they didn't want to have you know the schlock wolf man you know so we all we've all seen that so we want to do something different and we're subtle with the makeup effects and blah 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 and i'm like you're subtle with the makeup effects on channing tatum 
Yeah, like, yeah, not on, was, not on the uh, the owl guy or the elephant dude. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, what it was there. is you wanted to make sure that people could see that that was Channing Tatum. You needed people mm-hmm. to see the pretty boy. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, so anyway, I was just thinking about that. I was like, but I just neither one of them is believable in the role. Channing Tatum a little bit more, and I don't, and I'm not a Channing Tatum hater. I think he's fine. I love him in in like the the 21 Jump Street movies. And, and he stuff. seems like a great guy. Uh, yeah, he seems he seems like a nice guy. And, and Mila Kunis, like when you watch behind the interviews on this she's a delight she's fun but i don't think she's right for this role i i really don't i i have a hard time seeing her in especially in the uh the early scenes where she's cleaning toilets is like there ain't no world where she's cleaning toilets (laughs) (laughs) that's probably true that's sad but true but yeah yeah i mean it's it's that's the world we live in man (laughs) but uh, but then you know and I get that her character is supposed to be a little more passive. Like they didn't want her to be like a fighter. She only has one fight and that's when she beats up Eddie Redmayne at the end. Uh, but her this character also so comes across gross. as her character also comes across as just being like things happen to her. Mm-hmm. You know, she's just along for the ride. And that's not a case of, that's not, that's nothing against Mila Kunis. That's nothing to do with her role. That's how the role was written, you know? Uh, but that's just, like the, this whole movie is on their shoulders and I don't yeah. think either of them are right for the role. Like I would have liked to have seen Natalie Portman. I don't know who I would put in the, in the, uh, the Kane uh, role off the top of my head, but I, I, could, I saw, if I, I sat saw, down and thought about it, I'm sure I could think of 10 people who Joe, uh, Joe, um, Bob Briggs, Rogan, Joe, no, no, Joe, no. Pe- Joey, Pants. Joe Pesci, Pesci, <laughs> Joe men. Uh, um, I'm a little, oh, are you talking about, I know, I know who he's one. talking about and I'm just trying to let uh, him, I'm just Damn trying it. to let him fill it out. Yeah, he's Joey in Lawrence. he's in Spider-Man as oh fuck, Spider-Man, <laughs> Toby uh, Maguire, Man uh, Mantoliano. Man- talking about the guy who actually played a werewolf in True Blood. Yeah, he is. Did he's he? talking about Alcide. Yeah, Joe, Joe Mantoliano. Yes, that, yeah, yeah, he's that already guy. played a werewolf. You can't cast him. As but Kane. I think he would be better in this. No, this who I saw was considered at one point, and this could be just rumor but joseph gordon levitt like i could totally see him i could see him off, um, i could see him pulling true. it off a little bit better because yeah. uh, one i think he's a better actor than channing tatum uh but yeah i could i could see him pulling it off a little bit better uh you know i don't know who else i'd put vin diesel uh, uh, always always <laughs> of <Vin> course <laughs> this movie would not be hated if Vin diesel was well there. let's think about it this way if there were let, let's think about how Wachowski's like to work with past collaborators like let's say it was natalie portman can I just throw and in real quick, so, though, by the way, that the idea of Vin Diesel, like, just make it out with Mia Kudis, just, it makes me feel some kind of way. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't know if it's good or bad. I don't know if it's good or bad. It's just like, well, that's think some of, weird shit. What about from someone from a previous uh, Wachowski film that they would mm. might want to work with again? Who would you cast, like, from, from Cloud Atlas or Keanu? Keanu's a little old for uh, Tom Hanks. <laughs> Hugo Weaving. <laughs> Honestly, Hugo Weaving as Eddie Redmayne's character would have been pretty good, but that uh, would have better. been pretty awesome. But, but I mean, I like Eddie Redmayne in this movie just because it's so fucking weird. It's just I, really I, I weird. trying to be a good guy. I don't know why it's I have so, such a problem. It's, it's Eddie Redmayne and Juliette Lewis. They like just really upset me for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> just their faces. Uh, really well, Eddie, Redmayne's, Eddie Redmayne's mouth is just uh, just the weirdest mouth yeah. i've ever seen on a human <laughs> and when i mean you could do like, like jim sturgis or somebody end, like that like, from from like cloud atlas right like jim sturgis 
could make he's a better actor than Channing. Uh, he's not like physically imposing, but yeah, they got personal trainers. I don't know. <laughs> mm. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. let, let us know. Tweet at us and let us know who you would cast instead of Channing. The Channing. remake of Jupiter Ascending. Who do you <laughs> want to see? If you were if you were recasting this, if you had a time machine and you could go talk to the Wachowskis and talk them into cast, casting someone. When this else. movie is reattempted in 2037, who do you want to see cast in <laughs> Jupiter Ascending? All right. So guys, let, let tell me um if you were to if you were to do a, a double feature with Jupiter Ascending for, for our further viewing segment here on the show, oh what would you pair with this movie? You know, the hardest part is that seeing a double feature with a fucking Wachowski's movie, that's a long night. Like you're asking a lot. <laughs> this movie yeah. is barely this movie's just right over two hours long. It's not that I would say um since you've got Jupiter ascending, let's go Mars attacks and then uh <laughs> round out with planet Earth and uh <laughs> Planet Earth the entire series. Yeah, the entire series. So David Attenborough's Planet Earth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd I'd go with 2011's Green Lantern. Just make your knife miserable. <laughs> just, <laughs> like, just go for it. <laughs> just be like, I've never wanted to be sucked out into space so bad. <laughs> uh, so I would go with, I mentioned the fifth element earlier, but I would actually go with another Luke Besson movie, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, which came out a couple years after this in 2017. Uh, it's another movie that's like, it's got that whimsy and that type of sci-fi that you don't see a lot like this is it's the type of movie that luke Besson would have made the fifth element into if the technology had existed to do it it's uh, also a movie where the lead role uh is woefully miscast <laughs> dame Dahan in that uh, cara della then you whatever her name is she's fine in it but dame Dahan as a hero is hard to buy because he just looks like a fucking villain <laughs> like his, <laughs> his face just looks like a villain so that's kind of hard to believe him as like the the love interest slash hero but valerian is a movie that it it's a really big over bloated sci-fi movie but it is filled with insane ideas like more so than jupiter ascending like just crazy worlds and did very very poorly at the box office uh and i actually think I think Valerian, I think it's a better movie than Jupiter Ascending. I actually think Valerian is well worth watching, even with some of its flaws, uh, just because it's so big and it just, it, it's one of the most, most audaciously strange sci fi movies to come out in, in ages. Wow, and it was well, utterly will, ignored at the box office. When it I mean, out. I will say, I mean, we're 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 teasing this movie pretty hard, but like, um, I I I will say, I mean, I'm a big Wizard of Oz fan, but you know, my role here on the show is to kind of take things at face value of like, this is this is it, and do I like it or not? Um, but this does make me want to go back and watch it, subject myself to it one more time. But to see to see if I can pick out all of the Wizard of Oz parallels, and I'm not familiar with the Odyssey. That's one that's you know uh, that's a story that's uh, slipped by me. So it makes me want to you know look into the Odyssey and see you know all the details there. And you know, and is then... this if I was being like straightforward, like serious uh, Avatar 
is an easy one. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You could do like the modern, like the JJ Abrams Star Trek was just feels like a, it's got kind of a vibe to it. Uh, yeah. I see Justin wincing. He doesn't, he doesn't agree. But um, <laughs> uh, I mean, if you're going for what you're, what I was hoping to feel watching this movie, I mean, everybody will hate me for this, but still one of my favorite movies of all time is The Last Starfighter. And I feel like that that fits right in here. Uh, so I can see you that. Can also, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, if you wanted to have a Mila Kunis Wizard of Oz double feature to show Sam Raimi's Oz the Great and Powerful, which I think oh, she made yeah. like immediately before this movie. Uh, <laughs> don't watch that movie, though. Actually, it's pretty it's pretty terrible. I've still never seen it, oddly <laughs> enough. And I love it's, Sam Raimi. Uh, I do, too, but it's not a good film. No. So. <laughs> That'll well, be for our Sam Raimi series. Well, we might skip that one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so maybe it was due to poor reviews or, or maybe the trailers just didn't sell the movie to audiences. But either way, when Jupiter Ascending came out, it ended up doing pretty poorly at the box office. It had done poorly with the critics. It did poorly at the box office, grossing only $47 million in the U.S., $136 million worldwide for a gross of just $189 million on a budget of over 200 so it didn't even make its money back at the box office and that's before factoring in marketing and all the other expenses of actually getting a movie in front of audiences i you know i i'll give us i'll give us uh some props here i am super proud of the three of us uh for nobody during this recording saying damn jackie (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, you know, that seems like a really easy joke to make. And, you know, I'm going to be like, honest with you. I feel I, like I, all I, three of us are above that. I feel like that there's going to be somebody listening. And one thing I'm trying to work on is just saying what I really feel. And it doesn't matter if I have to, to take heat for it. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> That's, that 70s show. So that 70s show reference, Gary. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Never watched it. It's a good show. <laughs> I always, I always like, sometimes I feel like I, I hold back because I'm like, oh, I don't want to be the victim of ridicule here. But no, I mean, you're going to be the victim of ridicule, ridicule for one reason or another anyway. This so, true. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what this damn Jackie thing is. I know Mia Kunis is in that 70s show. I didn't know that. Oh, good. So in the months leading up to Jupiter Ascending's release while promoting the film, this is what Lana Wachowski had to say. This is a quote. Everyone says, and, and take, take this uh, before I start the quote. This is, uh, again, leading up to Jupiter Ascending. So this is before the film came out, before any kind of critical or commercial reaction to it had been made. She says, everyone says, why can't you be simpler? We're drawn towards difficult subjects like the disparity of rich and poor. We've been lucky. People at studios have been interested in our crazy, strange brand of complexity, and we've been allowed to keep making them. Will that continue? Probably not. And then Lily adds, but it was a good run. And uh, that's oddly prescient because for a while that was the case. Like they, they weren't, they, they, they'd had their run with, with feature films for a while. I think a lot of their ideas are just too ambitious and too weird and big for what Hollywood wants now. So their yeah. next project would be a Netflix original series, Sense8, which we've mentioned several times. And even that, series seemed too ambitious for the streaming network being canceled after only two seasons. And yeah. I think we'll probably talk about sense eight a little bit more in our next episode. Um, and in fact, the Wachowskis have, have as of now not directed another project together uh, with Lana Wachowski taking the reins for the fourth matrix as a solo director. And uh, Lily did not even help write the screenplay on that one. Hmm. So Lily in, 
in the time between Jupiter ascending and Sensate during this time period, went through some major changes in her personal life as well, coming out as a transgender woman in March of 2016. Uh, now, she has not been as open with her story as Lana has. Uh, you, you might notice in a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff on Jupiter Ascending, or all of their stuff, really, Lana is always more outspoken, uh, with Lily just kind of chiming in with kind of funny, sarcastic remarks here and there. Yeah. Uh, Lana just seems to be an out, more outspoken person in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after a reporter from the Daily Mail visited her uh, to get an interview with her about this rumored transition, she decided that she wanted to issue a statement Uh, herself instead of letting a shitty tabloid like the Daily Mail just out her. So the statement, which I think is worth reading in its entirety, uh, it was issued to her hometown newspaper, the Windy City Times, and it reads with the typical kind of humor and sarcasm that we've come to expect from Lily, but it also contains a lot of the sincerity and heart that we've come to expect from the films of the Wachowskis. So this is what she says. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but she says... uh, I am one of the lucky ones. Having the support of my family and the means to afford doctors and therapists has given me the chance to actually survive this process. Transgender people without support, means, and privilege do not have this luxury, and many do not survive. And as I continued to read her statement, this that was the only quote I was going to use, and then I kept reading it, and I came across this next statement. And I wanted to read it because I think it really ties into the t- themes of kind of fluidity that we've discussed in this series as we've studied the Wachowskis films. This quote's a little bit longer, but she says, these words transgender and transitioned are hard for me because they both have lost their complexity in their assimilation into the mainstream. There is a lack of nuance of time and space. To be transgender is something largely understood as existing within the dogmatic terminus of male or female, and a transition imparts a sense of immediacy, a before and after from one terminus to another. But the reality, my reality, is that I've been transitioning and will continue to transition all my life through the infinite that exists between male and female, as it does in the infinite between binary of zero and one. We need to elevate the dialogue beyond the simplicity of binary. Binary is a false idol. And I I love that quote because it it, it can apply. In this case, she's applying it to gender, but she's really apply. You can apply that idea to kind of anything Uh, Mm -hmm. because she is, as I think we all should, continuing to allow herself to change and grow, never content with being the same person that she was before. And I think that's a pretty fucking cool way of looking at life. Yeah, Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and maybe this, you know, I started thinking about it. I thought maybe this is why she didn't feel the need to work on another Matrix movie. The person, you know, maybe she, she felt she was repeating herself and that there wasn't any more of that story that, that she needed to tell. Or maybe it's just because she's a different person than she was going on, what, 22 years ago now? 20, yeah, yeah. 22 years ago. Uh, or, and maybe that's why she's now working separate from her sister because they haven't worked together again since. Uh, Lily uh, worked on the first season of Sense8 and Lana directed the rest of that series solo in the second season uh, because they, they're clearly still very close. They, they are closer than two siblings have I've, as I have ever seen two siblings be uh, right. like you see it in the, in the behind the scenes interviews on Jupiter ascending over and over. Like they finish each other's sentences. People say that all the time. Like they work, like they have a single brain, like they are very, very close, but maybe she just wants to tell her own stories in an, in an active kind of artistic fluidity mm. because Hey, I've been making movies with my sisters for two decades now. Maybe it's time for me to try something on my own, which is what she's doing. I, I will say this about the Wachowskis. One thing I always love about them and I always appreciate about them that I've learned through this series is 
and I know we're not quite done yet and we're going to get to that, but the, it is one thing to say that you love people or that you think that you're morally like you there, there, there's like a hundred philosophical directions you can go with this. So I'll try to keep it simple here <laughs> is that because I've been like super in, interested in philosophy lately, but everything they do is without judgment. Everything they do is I feel like legitimately with love and yeah. they believe the things they believe and they're trying to present ideas. They, they generally are or genuinely are, I feel like just artists trying to create and they're and they're even, even in that quote that you mentioned about binary being a false idol and all of that, I feel that way about generally 95% of things. I'm even talking about good and evil and, and sure left yeah. and right and right and wrong and everything else. It's like the world continuously will tell you to the world's not black and white. Yeah. You're either with us or you're against us. And I hate that fucking statement, like, because it's, it's just not, it's never how I feel. And, and it's easy for somebody like the Wachowskis to take a side and stand with it, or even take a, an approach and just be like, well, this is what we believe. And we believe in, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's hard to explain, but it's, it's like the Wachowskis present the conundrum. They present the discussion and and i think that's a beautiful thing like they they yeah. they they always they they never seem to i don't know completely land anywhere specific except in the idea of you should love other people and you should care yeah i mean that's people. that's a major theme in all of their films i think we talked about it the most probably during the matrix sequels because that's in the end it's it's neo's connection to trinity that has that, that motivates him to save humanity not because of his not not because he just feels like it's his purpose but it's because of his love for her and that's something you see throughout their films you see it majorly again in uh in cloud atlas which that's the main theme of cloud atlas is that you know we should just do good for other people and that the the repercussions of that will continue to ripple throughout history well i mean that's uh, the, the thing that blew my mind even there is that like you watch tom tom hanks like his genetic line or whatever you want to call it i mean it takes generations yeah but like it it gets there but it gets there it just <laughs> it takes gets time there eventually like yeah. some people just take longer than others to like yeah work through it and uh and that's not that's not i guess I'm, I'm just thinking that's not a uh concession that a lot of people are willing to give right that that they want you to be the same. It, it takes a minute and you mm-hmm. gotta you gotta work on it so now the question for us remains what does a wachowski film without both wachowskis at the helm look like uh, and or, or more specifically what does a matrix movie without both wachowskis at the helm look like and that's a question that I think, I mean, we don't know the answer because none of us have seen this movie yet, but we're all about to find out uh, very, yeah. very soon. Uh, so for the first time ever on the podcast here, we're going to be discussing a new release in a full episode. I think we may have done some bonus episodes where we talked about new releases in the past, but I can't remember. But we've never done a, a full episode uh, mm. like this on a movie that's currently out in theater. So we're going to try to do that for our next one to conclude this series, uh, the conclusion to our series on the Wachowskis uh, on our next episode, we are discussing 
The Matrix Resurrections. Uh, I can tell you guys how to watch it, but you probably already know if you're listening to this in real time, at least. Uh, you know that it's out in theaters and on HBO Max on December 22nd of this year. But we will not be back until the beginning of the year at some point. Uh, the, the, the first the first week of the year, I think, is, is we're, we're so skipping. Long. We're skipping an extra week uh, because it's uh, we got Christmas coming up. Yeah, we're, we're going to be holidaying. Yeah, we've got people going <laughs> out of town and all kinds of stuff. So we're and so normally it's normally it's two weeks. We every other week we release an episode. It'll be three weeks on this one. So. Well, folks, if you guys want to follow along with us here on the podcast, we are at cinema underscore shock on Twitter and Instagram. You can like us on Facebook, join our discord or head to cinemashock.net where you can uh, find links to all that shit, uh, as well as past episodes and series and merchandise and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, where can you gentlemen be? I use the term loosely, but where can you gentlemen be found on the Internet? <laughs> I am at this is Gary Horn on all the things. Um, I also do stuff with the nwa national wrestling alliance it's at nwa and i have a star trek podcast you can find it at computer resume on all the socials it's called computer resume podcast and we cover the entire star trek franchise in chronological order so uh head over to at computer resume and all the socials and you can find the podcast computer resume podcast wherever you get your podcasts and i am at mr todd a davis on all of the socials and I am at Justin underscore Bishop on Twitter, Instagram, and, uh, and Letterboxd. Uh, again, you can find the show at Cinema underscore Shock. And until next week, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Be excellent to each other. Marcus Larson has the keys. Oh, like that guy. Yeah. We are, uh, you know, about to take a break for Christmas, like Justin just said. Uh, what are your holiday movie plans this holiday season? What's 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 on your what's on your must watch list? Man, I watched the naughty cut of Krampus a couple of nights ago. Really? Uh, yeah, it just came out on 4K from Scream Factory. And have you seen Krampus, Todd? I know Gary has. No, I haven't. Uh, it's, I is that it the one? Year. It's got uh, it's, Adam Scott in it. Yeah, like at the man, beginning. No, he's in the whole movie. He's oh, he is? Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, it's a great movie. You're uh, mixing it up with Santa Slay, where there are a bunch of celebrities. That's just him at the beginning, yeah. That's the one with Bill Goldberg. Bill Goldberg murders them all. Which would make a great double feature, honestly. How <laughs> <laughs> about you, Gary? What is it, what's, on your, uh, what's on your holiday v- viewing agenda? Last night, I watched The Departed. Yeah, very Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. The wife was just like, I've never seen The Departed. I want to watch that. And I was like, let's do it. Uh, yeah. uh, the holiday, all the holiday classic, The Departed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what, what, what made that happen, but that movie still fucks. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's uh, awesome. But anyway, uh, no, no, no. I'm going to watch. I mean, I always watch every single year. Uh, Krampus is on that list. Uh, was the naughty cut different, Justin? Was it noticeably well, different? Or? N- not noticeably. There's about four extra minutes of footage. Uh, but surprisingly, you know, it was kind of billed like the, the extra footage was mostly like gore and stuff that caused, you know, that they had to cut to get a PG-13 rating. Mm. There's a little bit of that in that, like, in the attic battle 
yeah you know, towards the end of the probably, movie there's yeah. a there, but very very short like small little inserts most of the extra footage are is little like character moments oh, that's, uh, that's, so that's which should be cool no it's nice i mean it's it's a good cut um it's it's and and the 4k uh restoration looks pretty outstanding it's really good and yeah, i haven't gotten I, into the I'll special features that. yet but there's like an uh like an hour or so of brand new interviews and stuff with the cast and crew i'll have to check that out uh i always watch that i know it just feels so morbid but black christmas 79 yeah. i always watch black christmas I always watch it's a year. wonderful life and it's a wonderful life <laughs> yeah I'll which be, that's my double feature every year i it's love wonderful it's a wonderful life, life. Black christmas. <laughs> it's a wonderful life is you know it's one of those movies that's become a christmas classic despite most of the movie not being anything about christmas it's yeah. basically <laughs> the last scene but my parents watched it every like christmas eve growing up so i just that's become a tradition for me even nice. when, when i watch it now i'm like wait this is only christmas like in the last scene and the rest of the movie is about a suicidal man having a fucking nervous breakdown like, yeah is- you say that but that feels like a really cynical way to look at it too because i mean that's it's, what it's, it's about but it's that's I, what it, it is that's literally what it's about until he but finds it's as a, wholesome a as a speed racer though oh, yeah. no i agree credit to at the end he, i mean he has a, a man journey. discovering what really matters in life yeah. and like like falling in love with his family again and, yeah. and, and everything that he's been lucky enough to have. Like it's uh, much like John McClane. Well, right. Yeah, well, I yeah. And, and, and I mean, <laughs> and I, I think he already, he still loved his wife. She just wasn't loving him back. Right. 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 <laughs> Die Hard is another, I, I, watch yeah, I already, every, I already watched that one this year. Year. Here's, here's the thing. I, I was looking around uh, earlier this year and was just like, you know what? I don't think there's as concise and clear explanation as to why Die Hard is a Christmas movie than our show or well the previous version of our show <laughs> yeah yeah and, and, uh, that may be true because people can say that all they want and I guess it's just still like I, I don't even think it's a real debate I think we got there at the end but like I mean still Die Hard gives me Christmas feelings yeah. every time like and the it's music not, get it, it, it and ain't Christmas till Hans Gruber falls off a building that's true <laughs> it's like i don't care die hard makes me feel like it's christmas yeah so yeah absolutely whatever. i'll probably well, this uh, is christmas shock the the new podcast where we just <laughs> discuss christmas movies all year round yeah. uh that'll be good that'd be uh that's man, the, the boys from put a, put a little santa hat on the sea on the logo. <laughs> there you go <laughs> or on, the, on our little skull guy i think yeah I put a santa hat on the skull guy why did i think of that <laughs> what did we name him did we name him once scully or something yeah, scully. stupid scully. <laughs> very creative of us 